Welcome to the Sounds of the World. We are your hosts, Hillary and Bill. Together, we're going to travel around the world to discover new music, discuss musical topics, and interview fascinating people. Our world is a buffet of music, and it is time to eat. everybody to the sounds of the world uh this is um a wonderful new episode we have for you guys today uh, that was just a brief sample from a larger piece of our next guest called as light begins to drift uh he's originally from uh, reno nevada now lives in chicago where he attends the university of chicago in pursuit of his phd in music composition uh, i met this uh young man when he was just in high school and he just blew me away with his musical knowledge and insanely deep musical intuition. Uh, he's a brilliant composer, and we know he will be a big star very soon. He was recently the recipient of the American Composers Orchestra 2020 Underwood Commission for a new work that will be premiered in Carnegie Hall. And he also traveled to Barafa, Thailand, as part of the Thai Experimental Laboratory for Young Composers, where he collaborated with Thai musicians and composed a new piece uh, specifically for traditional Thai instruments. Uh, he's currently a member, uh, uh, has a number of commissions going out right now for ensembles, including the Boston New Music Initiative, Kinetic Ensemble, and the Willinger Duo. Please welcome to our little podcast, Paul Novak. Woohoo! Thank you so much, Bill. It's such a pleasure to be here. It's great to have you on. And of course, you know, we've known each other for Oh, what five six years now and it's so cool to see you again last time we saw each other it was coffee in rice village <laughs> yeah a totally different world just just a yeah. year now i guess yeah yeah it's crazy it's crazy to think how much things have changed since then yeah no it absolutely is yeah well it's, i'm so glad we we're able to reconnect with this podcast yeah yeah this is great it's great uh as our listeners might know uh hillary is not here with us um, we had talked a little bit about how she was feeling under the weather. Uh, turns out she does, she does or did have COVID and she's still recovering from it. So, um, it, it, please send her your well wishes. And, you know, we want to thank all the frontline workers out there who are doing their best and, you know, working as hard. I mean, there's a doctor here who was interviewed in Houston. He was on day 252 in a row. Um, so thank you so much to everyone. Um, and please be safe out there, wear your masks. You know, I know it's the holidays or at least it is currently while we're recording, but, uh, please be careful and, you know, it's okay. Luckily, thanks to zoom, we can have, you know, virtual meetings with family and friends. So, (laughs) you know, so, uh, we want to wish Hillary a get well soon and, um, you know, she's, she's awfully sad. She'll miss talking to Paul, but that's okay. We'll be able to, we'll, we'll, we'll wing it. <laughs> so perfect. Okay. So, um, so yeah, Paul, I just, I mean, you've done quite a few things, you know, you started, uh, you know, you had uh, your bachelor's rice at rice, correct? 
Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And then from there, you've gone on to the University of Chicago. So or do you, you know, do you come from a, a very musical family? So I actually don't come from a musical family, but I do come from a very artistic family because um, my mom is a professor at University of Nevada in Reno, where I grew up, um, and is a professional uh, poet and an English professor. Oh, cool. Um, so I think um, her kind of artistic background was one reason that I felt so kind of comfortable and supported pursuing the arts as well. Like, I think um, she kind of understood that she couldn't discourage me from doing that because that's what she did with her life. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, so I think I, um, even though neither of my parents are musical, um, I always felt very supported and um, yeah, they, they just were so encouraging of me um, when I started playing music. Um, and I also think um, I, I was not one of those composers who started playing piano when I was three or anything. I started learning music in the public schools when I was in fifth grade. Um, I was oh, a wow. flutist and I'm, I'm still a flutist. Um, and I think that that like public education was such an important thing for me. So support publication, uh, public education in the schools. It's very yes, please. <laughs> oh, that's cool. I, I, you know, as you were saying that, I, I remembered, you know, that your mom had been an English professor, as my mom was too, uh, you know. Yeah, we, we had talked about that, yeah. Yeah, so it's, it's cool, that little connection. And it's funny that, you know, both of our parents, they're like, well, you know, it's what they're passionate about. We'll just, you know, <laughs> it may not be engineering or law, but... <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And my, uh, my twin brother is a computer scientist, so he can be the one who supports me. Oh, wow. Cool. That's cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Make him pay the bills. There you right. go. <laughs> and so you started off playing flute. Um, uh, where, how did you get into composing from that? Yeah, so I um, owe so much to the Reno Philharmonic, which I feel like was one of the first experiences I had ever had composing for like a real ensemble. I mean, I'd, I'd done a little bit. I had um, the free version of Finale, Finale Notepad on my computer, which I think came with the first book I had for band. And so I had messed around <laughs> a little bit. Um, but um, what really got me very passionate about composing was um, when I was in seventh grade, Sean Shepard was the... Um, he was the composer in residence at the Reno Philharmonic, and he was running a program for um, students who were in the youth orchestras. And he ran a workshop of which I was only one of three people to show up to. And I think after that, he really took me under his wing and mentored me for um, a couple of years. And then the year after that, he actually, um, on one of the Reno Phil Young Persons concerts, he got one of my pieces played by the Reno Phil. And that was just like this eye-opening experience. Wow. Uh, I mean, it must have been 12 at the time. Um, to have wow. my a piece played by a, a real orchestra, um, and of course, I had no idea what I was doing at the time. I was, I was right. <laughs> um, no, I, I just like was so grateful for his generosity and in, in giving me those opportunities when I was so young, and it, um, yeah, it opened up a whole world to me. That's cool. I, it's, it's, you know, it's. I think a lot of people don't put into the idea of like how much of a big thing that is for someone so young. You know, just to be like. Um, you know, a lot of orchestras, they have issues with trying to program anyone new, you know, uh, they're still stuck with, you know, the classics and the great old dead people. Um, so it's really cool that someone was able to, you know, be like, oh, this is, you know, this will be good for them. There's a lot of potential in that. That's really awesome. Yeah, no, it was, it was such a wonderful thing. And I think um, for Sean, too, it was just uh, a way to give back because he's from Reno originally, too, and grew up playing in the same youth orchestra I did. And um, his composer and residence ship in Reno was sort of um, this homecoming in a certain way. And I think he just uh, felt a similar kind of gratitude to the community and just wanted to, um, yeah, to give back in that same way. 
Oh, cool. So is that what inspired you to start the Artemisia Ensemble? That was certainly one of the things. Yeah, so uh, the Artemisia Chamber Ensemble um, was a group that um, me and a couple of my friends started at the end of my uh, high school experience um, where uh, it was just me and I think about 10 other uh, musicians who would all come together and play chamber music and especially perform um, new music by local composers of which Bill, you were one. Um, yeah. And, uh, the other one <laughs> who we played a lot of music of was uh, Tim Chatwood. Mm -hmm. um, and I just remember that being such a um, really, really fantastic experience, um, partly because um, chamber music, I, I find, is just one of the most lovely things, especially when you're doing it with friends. It's like this uh, absolutely um, beautiful kind of cooperation between, um, yeah, but between different people where you have to be totally in sync and following and leading each other in this really wonderful way. Um, and then to be performing new music when the composer is in the room is just like this really absolutely um, amazing experience. Yeah. Because like whenever you have a question, you can just ask the composer. Exactly. <laughs> Whatever Mozart or Beethoven wanted. Yeah. You don't have to think, oh, man, how how much is this retardando, you know, or right. <laughs> yeah. how much of an attack are we putting on this thing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No. So I, I just love that kind of experience. And um, yeah. Yeah. That that. Uh, type of ensemble uh, was was just a really um, fantastic thing for me. Yeah, that's that's awesome. You know, I I recently spoke to uh, uh, Emmy Award winning Joel Thompson. Uh, he wrote uh, the last seven words of the Unarmed. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with that piece, but he he talked about how choir can be such a communicative experience, and uh, I think it's you know we definitely shouldn't. Uh, uh, what is it, maybe misplace the idea that uh, chamber ensembles can be just as communicative, you know, as or um, just as much of a uh, community creation as that is, you know. Um, yeah, yeah, and I think that's something that I love the most about being a composer, is just that it's this sort of inherently social art form, like mm -hmm. even though um, so much of being a composer is you're like in isolation writing music, like <laughs> <laughs> you know, like a hermit or whatever. Um, but um, the thing that I love the most and that most composers I know really love is the social aspect of it, where you're in rehearsal with performers, like seeing your music slowly come together. And it's this mm -hmm. really kind of um, interactive uh, thing. Um, and even though your art is like the solitary thing, you need other people to bring it to life, which is, is a beautiful thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I've always loved sitting there in the auditorium as they rehearse, you know, and you're I mean, as the composer, you're sitting there and you're analyzing of like, what's going on? Is this what I meant? You know, as you're hearing it, but at the same time, you're getting chills by hearing your music come out from the notes or from your head, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, and especially in like orchestra rehearsals where you're sitting in the audience and you know, you'll have like, you know, 30 seconds to give some comments and you need to pick like the most important things. Oh yeah. Um, and yeah, just like hearing this big piece for the first time um, and you're just letting it wash over you and are like kind of deer in the headlights a little bit. Yeah, it's. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So who are some of uh, your, your like inspirations like composers or musicians that have inspired you through your, you know, cause your music is, is I want to say completely different, but it's it's definitely different from what I write. Um, um, and so, I, I mean, I love what you write. I think it's amazing and beautiful. And so I would definitely love to know, you know, what what do you, um, like who inspires you? What gets you going? 
Yeah, well, thank you so much for saying that, first of all. Um, yeah, I think uh, one composer who I've been drawn to just over and over again for about the last six years is Toru Takamitsu, who mm. um, is one of the most important Japanese composers of the um, second half of the 20th century and just wrote this um, absolutely gorgeous blend of um, of uh, kind of European modernism with uh, kind of idioms and the aesthetic ideas of um, of the Japan where he uh, where he lived and um, yeah so that music is just something I absolutely adore um, yeah some other music I've been loving recently is um, Oliver Nussen who's a hmm. a British composer who just passed away two years ago um, but who wrote like this these incredibly short but like perfectly formed pieces where um the piece is only like four minutes long but it feels like it's 20 minutes long it's that oh, kind wow. of the world um yeah and i think another composer who's similar to that is unsuk chin um who's a, a korean composer who i think is is one of the most important living composers right now and just writes such perfectly crafted music yeah so those are, are three composers who i uh just return to over and over again oh that's cool uh, what is it about like um, their their music? Like you talked about how Takamitsu, you know, kind of joins together this traditional Japanese and the Western I- ideas. But like, what is it about un- what is Unsuk Chin, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Nasen. I mean, what is what is it about the music that really kind of attracts you to them? I think for both of them, there's like a clarity to their music. Like mm. even, they can be writing the most complicated music with all these different rhythms happening at once. But because they're such masters of orchestration, you can hear every single thing that's happening. Um, I think that's especially true of, of Unsuk Chin, um, where like she, her music, if you look at it on the page, it, it looks like it's gonna be this just inc- um, incredibly complicated, uh, muddy mess of sound. But as soon as you hear it, it's like, like these little pinpricks of light. It's like um, mm. just this amazing orchestrational effect. So um, yeah, I think that focus on orchestration is certainly something that I'm drawn to um, in, in all three of those composers who I mentioned. Oh, that's cool. That's cool. I'll have to definitely check those out. I mean, I've, I've listened to Takamitsu quite a bit, but not the other two. So I'm going to have to put them on my, my short list. <laughs> let's, let's talk maybe a little bit more about uh, the piece that we began with as the light begins to, to drift. First of all, maybe we could just talk about, first of all, like how you came up with the piece idea. And then uh, maybe from there, we can talk about like how you even start a piece like this. Yeah, absolutely. So um, this was a piece that I wrote my junior year at Rice. And um, it was the biggest piece that I'd written in a couple of years. It's for um, an ensemble that's called Chamber Orchestra or Sinfonietta, which is essentially like one of every instrument in the orchestra. So usually like 14 or 15 players. Okay. Um, and uh, 
I had sort of known going into writing this piece um, that the people who I would ask to play it were like all of my closest friends, which is like the most wonderful thing as a composer to know exactly <laughs> every part and um, all of their strengths and all of their musical personalities. So um, I think uh, midway through the piece, there's a really long clarinet solo. And yeah. the clarinetist who was playing that solo was my roommate for two years and who's one of my closest friends. <laughs> that that nice. sort of thing is uh, just the, the type of um, like, musical and personal interaction that I just live for. Like, I, I love that. Um, in terms of what the piece is actually about, um, I was really inspired by this image that I had of um, the way that the clouds often look at sunset in Houston, which I'm sure is something mm. you're totally familiar with, where the entire sky will just kind of turn this like churning purple color and it's this absolutely gorgeous thing. Oh, it's gorgeous, yeah. definitely. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and uh, sometimes the sun will like be shining really, really strongly through, and then it will get covered up, and then it will come through again, and it's just this um, really beautiful mixture of different colors, and um, this kind of image of the sun getting covered up and then emerging again was uh, was a lot of the orchestrational inspiration of the piece, and you'll hear that there's a lot of different play of um, things that are clear and things that are unclear kind of in conflict with each other. Um, and in the same way, things that are light, like there's a lot of very light sounds like um, like uh, high percussion instruments and mm -hmm. high violin harmonics um, in contrast with, with much kind of muddier, darker sounds. Um, so uh, I often like to think of my music in terms of these conflicts or dialogues between opposing ideas. For me, it's a, a really kind of interesting way to, to organize music. Yeah, I, I like that. I mean, it, it does seem to kind of play off the old, um, you know, as learning about sonata form, you know, they're like, you have your A four, your A and your B part, you know, and they're in conflict with each other, you know, so it is, it's nice that, um, you know, if we think about it in that way, but I do like how you have this great talent to, um, without a lot of effort, it just flows from those really high sparkly you know vibe and upper percussion and then the high strings and then the next thing you know you're it's very more tumultuous and you've got but i think there was like toms right and uh a couple low strings and things and it's just how easily they they go in and out of each other and then you know the clarinet just kind of emerges you know yeah well thank you so much yeah yeah, I think uh, flow is something I think a lot about in my music. And mm. thing I've kind of been realizing um, just in terms of my own composition in the last couple of years is that often flow is something that just kind of happens. Like when you put two ideas side by side, the flow between them will just kind of exist. And um, you often don't need to think explicitly about transition. And just, just by putting two ideas in, in dialogue with each other, that's a flow in itself. Um, so I, I kind of like that idea of just... Um, you put things side by side and you see what happens. Yeah. yeah. So do you, do you begin with like, um, like, did you begin with just like the idea of the clarinet solo or did you begin, uh, how did you start sketching out the piece? I guess. I mean, we know the overall idea of the piece, but how did you begin actually composing it? Yeah, so I think that actually the, um, I'm normally not a composer who writes left to right. Like I normally will start out with something in the middle of the piece and kind of build the piece around this. But actually in this oh, okay. piece, the first idea that I had was this um, opening of the piece, which is this um, incredibly um, harmonically simple. Like it starts with only one note and then it's two notes and then it's three notes and then it's four notes. Just this 
kind of um, gradual accumulation, but um, on that very simple kind of harmonic layout, it's this incredibly complicated texture. So just these different instruments kind of swirling and emerging and receding from this um, different, different color palettes of the orchestra, which is, is uh, something I absolutely love to play with. Um, so uh, that, that was sort of the idea that, um, that turned into this piece. And I, I ended up kind of taking that idea and almost um, doing it like a, a theme in variations where every, mm. um, every section of the piece is still kind of centered around that idea in a certain way, but um, each one is completely different. Now I have to ask, do you, do you have synesthesia? No, I, I actually okay. do not. Yeah, so when I'm talking about colors, I mean it pretty much metaphorically. Okay, uh, okay. Because yeah. <laughs> I know I, Hillary has synesthesia. And oh, okay. I, yeah, and I know a couple other people who have who have it, um, and uh, like we interviewed a Swedish composer Benjamin Stern, who has it, and like he has all the pitches sketched out in color, you know, and so you can look at how he stacks the chords and the ultimate color reactions of those. So, but because when I hear your music and I hear those opening chords and I hear these these you know, these dense or very open textures, you know, they do create like a, their own worldly sense, you know what I mean? And so I just didn't know if you saw that in a similar situation or if it's like painstakingly sitting at the piano and going, okay, I like this and this and this and, you know. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, I think um, when I think of color, I think um, there are really these two ideas that typically composers think are separate, but which I actually sort of think are the same thing, which are timbre and harmony. And typically when we're talking about color, we're talking about those two ideas. And I think in, in, in reality, they actually are kind of fused in a, in a certain way. Um, but um, I'm really drawn to the music of a lot of composers who did have synesthesia. And I think two really good examples of that are Messiaen and uh, Scriabin, both of whom um, yeah. had synesthesia in terms of the, the harmonies that they were writing. And um, I think because of that created these absolutely uh, gorgeous open sonorities. Um, yeah, like both of them wrote music that just shimmers, like it, it shimmers oh. off the page. Yeah, I mean, I... I... I would sit there just waiting while listening to Scriabin and just like absorbing the world, the sound world around me, you know, that he creates wow, and just like yeah. trying to live in it as much as long as possible. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. What was so? What's the story of the performance of um, of the light? So, is it, you wrote it for that chamber ensemble at Rice, and then at, has it had further performances? Or um, yeah, well, that, that's actually a, a really interesting question. So, um, after I finished this chamber orchestra version, I actually um, went out to create a version for full orchestra. Oh, cool. Um, 
And um, normally this is something I am not totally fond of doing with my pieces, just because usually they're conceived of for a certain instrumentation and sort of right. change it for something else doesn't feel right. But um, this, this piece I felt like is so much about orchestration. I thought it would be kind of a fun challenge. And so I um, submitted it to the American Co Composers Orchestras, one of their um, submissions, which um, for any young composers out there, I absolutely recommend submitting to. I mean, it's just the most amazing opportunity uh, to, um, yeah, to work with either the American Composers Orchestra or any of the other orchestras who have those types of reading sessions. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was picked for the reading and was actually read in New York on March 13th and 14th. So right as COVID was shutting everything down. Right. Uh, it must have been like one of the last orchestra performances in New York before um, the lockdown wow. in March. So I, I just feel so grateful I was able to have that experience. And um, yeah, I mean, I think uh, it's a totally different animal writing for orchestra versus mm -hmm. writing for this um, like large chamber ensemble of 15 players, like um, where I think in the chamber ensemble, it has this really kind of clear sound, like you hear everything, you hear um, especially the percussion and the piano come through so clearly, oh, whereas yeah. the orchestra is, um, it's a much kind of blurrier sound, like you you hear a lot more of this cloudiness. Um, so. I don't know, maybe one way to say it in terms of my piece is that you get more of the light in the symphonietta version and you get more of the drift in the, the orchestra version. <laughs> I like that, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I find that too. Um, uh, like I, I uh, my my dissertation piece, you know, except for a really small chamber ensemble. Well, not really small, but chamber ensemble. And I was like, oh, you know, I had a bunch of the players be like, you should set this for orchestra. But then as like, I set out to do it, I find, I found that it was so much harder because you have so many more colors, timbres, and fingers, you know what I mean? So you could divide up those first violins by so many, you know, and then really be like, okay, well, do I really need a second violin now? <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah, no, I feel like with orchestra, there's just so many different options and um, so many like completely different sounds you can get that like sometimes the the options are just like, uh, like kind of overwhelming. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 And I also think that um, for me, writing for orchestra has always kind of felt like home a little bit just because I grew up playing in youth orchestra for like, like seven years from elementary school to high school. Um, and so I think to me, just like like hearing those sounds and um, all the different ways that you can orchestrate it, often it just feels so kind of familiar. Um, whereas certain other types of music, such as like choral music or um, yeah, or uh, like percussion music seem like much more kind of foreign and unfamiliar to me. So I, I think a lot of it just comes down to your, your own um, like background as a composer and, and what feels like home. Yeah. Do you think, do you feel that since you're a flute player, maybe you might hear um, upper tones or more, um, say, harmonic influenced things or more melodic influenced in your, because of that education? That's a really good question. Yeah. So I think... Um... For me, one of the main ways that I think my flute playing has influenced my music is just that I really like high music. And I think <laughs> you can hear that. Like, I love string harmonics. I love really sparkling, shimmering sounds. Um, I don't write a lot of really like low, uh, kind of dark, muddy music as much. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of melody versus harmony, um, I think that's a, a really good question. And I think in a lot of my music, I kind of try to 
to use them at the same time. Like I'm really fond of melodies that kind of create their own harmony or um, harmonies that are really kind of a melody, if that makes sense. So um, yeah, oh, yeah. To combine melody and harmony in, in interesting ways. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, because that's, that's something I've always wondered is like those who have experienced maybe the low end or maybe piano, they might be more in, interested in either melodic or if they are more interested in maybe middle to low um, man, majority maybe of pieces, you know? Yeah, no, it's it's an interesting thing to psychoanalyze. Um, but I think in some composers have like very specific reasons that they write the music that they do. And others, I think it's it's so much kind of just this intuitive personal thing where there's not a specific reason. It's just the sound that they're drawn to. Yeah. Let's talk about anatomies. Of fragile things, yeah. Fragile things, yeah, that's right. Yeah, so um, this was a piece for, it's for oboe, violin, and piano. Um, and it's another one of the pieces that I wrote my junior year at Rice and was similarly written for um, a trio of my closest friends and collaborators. So it was written for my uh, my friend Julia Simpson's uh, recital as something of an encore piece. Okay. And, um, it's for me writing an encore piece is something that was really kind of challenging just because I think um, I tend to shy away from um, virtuosity in the most typical sense. Like I think my music, it's certainly not easy to play, but right. I think that uh, it tends to be kind of delicate and quiet and resist those like really fast and loud virtuosic tropes. Um, and so this piece was a really interesting um, chance to kind of try and synthesize uh, that virtuosity with um, the the sound of my music and the the uh, the music that I really wanted to write. So um, I think you'll hear there. There's certainly a lot of virtuosic playing in it for all three players. Like uh, not only in terms of lots of fast notes, but a lot of, of melodic playing too. Um, but um, yeah, yeah, it was a lot of fun to put together. And uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Julia, I, I think um, one of the main things I was thinking about when I wrote this is just that Julia has the most gorgeous oboe sound and can play so lyrically. And so there's a lot of very lyrical oboe writing in it. Oh, very cool. Yeah, yeah. I was listening to it and um, it's, it's. I don't want to say it's like the antithesis of As the Light, but it, it's definitely different, you know, like it still sounds like Paul, you know, but it doesn't, it's not like if we put the two on a like a playlist, people are like, is that Paul or is that, you know, David Bruce or, or someone else, you know, <laughs> you know, it definitely has your, your mannerisms of it. Um, but it, it's definitely, it really does have this like forward momentum. And like you said, it's virtuosic without being, you know, all the fireworks in the in the sky, you know? Right, right. Yeah. And I, I think um, that's a really interesting line to walk, I think, um, as, as a composer, because often you're asked to write music for very specific things. Like, I think most of the time when you're asked to write a piece, it's you know what concert is going to be played on and you know who's going to play it. Um, and so I think um, it's a always kind of a, a tightrope walk, walk as a composer where you're trying to um, write the piece that you want to write and that will be most personally fulfilling for you. But also you want to write the piece that makes the person who's playing it sound the best and fits right. the concert it's going to be played at the best and fits the venue it's going to be played at the best. Um, and so it's, it's always a really interesting balance. And um, I don't know, I, I like to think that often the two kind of go hand in hand, like 
um, the piece that uh, I want to write is a piece that sounds really good. And if the person loves to play it and um, it like fits their playing well, it will sound really good. So uh, I think often those two things kind of go hand in hand. Oh, definitely. Definitely. I mean, you've got to kind of separate your ego in a way, you know, and uh, not just, it's not just about you, you know, <laughs> right. You got to be able to, to, to promote what's going on for the performer as well. So, yeah. And so what, that was performed on her recital right at Rice. Yeah. And it's been played a, a couple of different times since then. Um, oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. I love doing these projects where you're writing for a specific person and know exactly who's going to be playing it and can really um, write something that plays to their strengths. Yeah. And so uh, it's, do you know, like maybe where it's all been performed or do you just, you find out, Oh, look, it's been performed here. <laughs> oh, no, I, I know I've been involved with all the performances. Yeah. Oh, okay. Cool, uh, but cool. it was played in New York uh, about a year ago. Um, and then it was played, it's been played at Rice, I think, three times now. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, just, just different performances that uh, most of the time have just been uh, my friends. Yeah. Apologies for the sirens happening right now. Something <laughs> dramatic is happening outside my apartment. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> that's okay. We had sirens in another interview. It's fine. <laughs> that's what the joy of live recording. Yes. So. And the joy of, of recording during uh, COVID. Yeah. Right. <laughs> If I had a, a like a, a soundproof studio, we could meet in, you know, if only. But <laughs> yeah, uh, it's funny because like as we were doing these, like setting up this interview and stuff, I had flashbacks of when you, Tim, and I sat down and uh, talked about the upcoming performances for Amnesia. That's right. I remember that. Yeah, yeah, and we were we were all trying to get on our best NPR voices then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so my name is Bill, and <laughs> this is Paul. And <laughs> wow, is that Ira Glass I hear there? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was that was so. Uh, it's it, yeah, it's cool. Uh, so I, of course, I have to ask. I have to know what was it like to a go to Thailand, and then b write a piece of music for instruments you. I assume you've never played before. Yeah, so it was just this absolute whirlwind of an experience where um, I only learned that I was doing it about a month beforehand. And it was this <laughs> a really amazing opportunity that was set up through um, Ko uh, Koji Nakano, who's a really wonderful composer who teaches at um, Barafa University in Thailand and is uh, close friends with Shui Chen, who is one of my teachers at Rice. And, oh, okay. Uh, and uh, it was, uh, Dr. Nakano has set up this festival every year in Thailand called the Thai Experimental Laboratory for Young Composers, where he brings in five composers every year, each from a different country, um, and none of them from Thailand. And so for all of us, we're kind of out of our element a little bit. Um, right. And uh, essentially what it is, is two weeks of really intense rehearsals with a group of, um, of Thai traditional musicians who are students at a Thai conservatory learning, learning these instruments. And, um, and uh, it, through those ex experiences, you sort of build a piece together. Um, and for me, as like a, a white American, I was really kind of cautious and wary coming into it, just because I, I didn't want to do anything that would potentially be like culturally appropriate or... Right. Um, and um, the experience I had there was, uh, I, I don't know, it was just eye-opening in, in so many different ways where... Uh, 
I think a lot of the, the students were just as interested in learning about the music that I normally wrote as I was learning about um, what they did. And uh, also none of them spoke English. And so I came into rehearsal with my flute and I sort of taught them the, the piece that we were gonna be playing together. And we did a lot of kind of group improvisations uh, and the, the piece that eventually emerged was sort of like a structured improvisation. Wow. But yeah, no, for me, it was just this, this absolutely wonderful whirlwind experience. And was it, <clears throat> was it kind of like, <clears throat> sorry, a, a Thai version of like a chamber ensemble you would have had a rice or like you had strings and winds and percussion or how did, what kind of instrumentation did you have to play with? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. So um, it was, I was writing for a quintet of Thai instruments um, of which um, in, in a certain sense, they did correlate a lot with like the instruments of the Western orchestra. Um, but I think once you actually started working with the, the um, performers, you would realize their sounds are so different and blend mm -hmm. in these absolutely ways. Um, so Thai music is a really kind of fascinating intersection of a lot of different musical cultures, um, partly because just geographically it's located between, um, between China, um, Southeast Asia, and India. And so there's influences from all three of those regions, um, including you have um, instruments that are uh, sort of imported from China, including um, like similar to like a Chinese erhu. Um, you have uh, instruments that are imported from India and also instruments that are imported from um, from like Indonesia. So similar to like gamelan instruments, but um, oh, cool. as they're, they've also been kind of changed. And so um, it's this really interesting combination of sounds. Um, and yeah, it was, it was just such a pleasure to um, to learn from these young musicians and, and get to know their instruments and their playing and um, yeah, I, I learned so much just in those two weeks I was there. Yeah, I mean, that sounds just so mind-boggling and, uh, and yet so inspiring, you know, to be uh, in this country where you have these people who, you know, A, they don't speak your language, you don't speak their language, and you just are using music as that universal language is so cool. Um, but I would be scared out of my mind. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it was really like taking a step into the unknown a little bit. Um, but uh, yeah, it was it was also just a really wonderful group of composers. Um, all, each of us from a different country. It was one from, um, I was the only one from the US. There was one from Japan, one from China, one from Korea, and one from Myanmar. Um, oh wow! Okay. Uh, yeah, just this incredibly diverse group of composers, all kind of drawing on different artistic practices and writing and very different aesthetics. Um, and I think the the final concert where we all had our pieces performed was just a really wonderful thing because we had all kind of approached this project in very different ways. Yeah, yeah. And so did, um, well, did you have a recording of it? Like, so did you take any of that back to America? and then use it in future pieces? I, I think I absolutely did, yeah. So um, one of the main things that I learned from the musicians there is just um, a completely different conception of rhythm than we think mm. of in the US, where um, in, in, uh, like in European music, we typically think about the, everything kind of moving towards the next downbeat, right? Where like there's always this kind of weight towards the downbeat. Um, and in Thai music, it's exactly the opposite. The downbeat is not emphasized and the upbeat is the beat that's emphasized. And um, often there's kind of more of a freedom about like metric time um, okay. in, a, in a very different way. And so I think uh, kind of this type of uh, instability is something that I certainly took back. Um, 
I also just think the instruments are just gorgeous too. Like the, um, yeah, there's an instrument called the, the Ronat Ek, which is like a, um, a, a xylophone that you typically play with two mallets in octaves and just has the most like glorious sound with so many different overtones and um, yeah. And is that inspired by like the gamelan of Malaysia? And um, I mean, it's it's one of the uh, instruments in Thai classical music. So there's a oh, long okay. playing on these instruments, but it's certainly related to uh, to different types of um, ensembles all across Asia. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah, that's so cool, man. I would just it, um, just that idea. I, you know, we talked to uh, Chitori Shimizu, and he talked to us about. Um, time theories, you know, and about how, you know, in, in Western classical music, time th- moves in a very consistent, even perceptible way, right? Um, and whether or not you have just an ensemble with open whole notes, or you have an ensemble <clears throat> who's doing just quarter notes, like you can perceive when the next beat will be, so to speak, things move in such a way but he related it to uh, gagaku music from Japan and about how, you know, they move, the music moves as the ensemble members feel it should move, you know? And it's just those kinds of ideas. They're just so amazing. Like these Eastern, uh, you know, East Asian ideas or these, you know, non, (laughs) non Western uh, Euro America centric you know, ideas are so cool. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this conversation has really come full circle because a lot of those ideas are um, also very much at play in the work of Takamitsu too, who um, mm-hmm. draws uh, very much on the Japanese concept of ma, which is uh, means silence, but also is just this uh, much kind of broader aesthetic principle about um, space. And yeah. if you to Takamitsu's music, one thing that distinguishes it from a lot of the European composers or American composers working at the time is there's just so much silence and space in it. Like you'll hear these, um, these gestures that rise up and then come down and just kind of exist in this, this world with so much empty space. And um, yeah, I, I, I think uh, there's, there's so many things to explore in these ideas. So how is how is Chicago treating you? How is I mean, I know that you you know thanks to this wonderful COVID, uh, you're stuck pretty much at in your apartment. Um, but like University of Chicago, the best university in the world. Uh, how how is it going? Things are great. Yeah, I um, right now I'm studying. Yeah, I think in some ways the University of Chicago is sort of the opposite of rice. Where 
Rice was uh, very much like a conservatory in the old fashioned sense. Um, they would call it like an orchestra training school where people would go there to like train in the orchestra and then go and get like real orchestra jobs. Yeah, um, yeah. I saw a lot of people get jobs and they had rice in their bios. I was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so people would, were very much there for this like practical um, experience-based kind of learning. Whereas at University of Chicago, it's um, much, much more kind of um, like intellectual and academic types of learning, um, which is something I think I kind of missed out on a little bit at Rice. And so it's really wonderful to be here taking, taking classes, not with performers, but with um, music theorists and ethnomusicologists and music historians. Um, so I think in some ways I feel a little bit like a fish out of water, partly because I'm, I'm not a scholar, I'm a, I'm a composer. So it's, this is all kind of new for me, um, just yeah. in this academic world. But um, no, it's, it's been a really wonderful experience. Um, I think one really nice thing too, is that my cohort, um, the people in my year, it's really tiny. It's, it's me and five other people. Wow. Um, even though uh, COVID has obviously prohibited a lot of things, we've at least gotten to know each other really well and um, gotten to see each other in socially distanced hangs and that kind of thing. That's cool. That's cool. I mean, I completely understand. I mean, going to Nevada, Reno, you know, it was, I was one of the only one, you know, there were two composers there for their masters and everyone else were performers, you know, so jazz and all this. And so, it was great to hear them and perform and, you know, think about those in a perform things in a performance level. But then when I got to LSU, I was in all these classes with theorists and, you know, uh, musicologists. And I was just like, what, who, who are these theorists that you're talking about? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. I've definitely like had to learn how to be like a good student again. It's been a <laughs> But um, no, I, I, I've been enjoying it a lot and I'm still writing a lot of music too. Like I think one thing that I feel just immensely grateful for is that I've still had a lot of work during COVID and I've still had um, a lot of pieces to write and um, yeah, um, even a couple of performances during the pandemic, which is- Oh, been, wow. It has been really nice. Yeah, just to, to still kind of have music making happening, even though it's, it's not the same as being there in person and, you yeah. know, get to work one-on-one -on -one with the musicians. Yeah. So are you working on pieces that involve um, performers and electronics in a spatial sense or? Um, so actually, just a couple of weeks ago, I recorded a solo flute and electronics piece in uh, one of the performance spaces at University of Chicago. So oh, um, cool. Yeah, which is for, uh, it's a really interesting project where it's this uh, very kind of ambient type of um, music that's, uh, the flute part is entirely improvised. And I think it's really different than a lot of the music I make. It's more just about existing in this world, um, this very kind of uh, static, but um, very, very pretty world. And um, yeah, so I'm going to be editing the video and audio for that and hopefully posting something of that soon. Um, but in terms of the the other composition project, most have just been for acoustic instruments. Yeah, so I, I wrote a, um, a big string quartet for a kinetic ensemble earlier this year, um, which uh, they performed on November 1st and uh, just did a really wonderful job with a, oh, awesome. a big piece. Yeah, so that piece was called um, A String Quartet is Like a Flock of Birds. Okay. Exploring the, uh, it, it was sort of about um, what this return to music making means um, and how uh, a string quartet is just this inherently kind of social type of experience and how wonderful it is for, for that to be happening in person again. Yeah, yeah, it's, 
you know, there we go back full circle again to <laughs> the community properties are performing together, you know, and on some. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, so you worked with Kinetic and then uh, Willinger Duo. Yeah. So uh, the Willinger Duo is a really fantastic group of um, two, uh, two young musicians um, who are brothers um, who uh, both go to University of Michigan are just amazing performers. Um, yeah, so I'll be writing a duo for them over the summer. Um, yeah, my next couple projects are, uh, right now I'm working on a piano quartet called uh, Interlocutor for um, Left Coast Chamber Ensemble. Okay. Uh, to be played at uh, a festival at Illinois State called um, the Red Note New Music Festival. Um, and then uh, I'm writing a, a piece for the Boston New Music Initiative for uh, like a piano ensemble. Um, this year too. So a lot of kind of smaller chamber ensemble type things, but uh, yeah, always a lot of fun. And I'm, I'm just so grateful to like still have music happening and. Yeah. And to still have, be able to be out there and or at least composing, you know? Right. Right. Yeah. I think um, one of the worst things about like the pandemic has just been the sense of limbo, right? Like, like you're, you might be writing music, but you kind of feel like you're like in purgatory because um it almost feels like nothing is going anywhere. And so just to have like these couple of performances has been a really wonderful thing that uh, makes me feel a lot more like enthusiastic and motivated about my own work. Yeah, that's good. That's good. I, you know, it's amazing the little things that will, you know, really kind of pull you out of whatever mental slump you might be into, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then, so how far out are you booked on commissions? Um. I think for about the next year, I mean, a lot of things are still in flux because who knows what's going to get canceled. And right. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, that, that to me is just one of the most tragic things. And I think um, in a lot of ways for performers more than composers, just to um, have uh, so many performers have had their entire source of income just totally decimated. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah. And for, for me, I think I, I've just been trying to keep my schedule a little bit flexible just to, um, yeah, to to see what happens and which things will be happening by live stream and which things will be getting canceled and um, yeah. So I, I think um, in some ways it's it's always like kind of depressing to have uh, projects like get canceled. Um, but um, of course, I completely understand why, and I think it's it's just a sacrifice that we have to make right now to keep everyone safe. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, but I mean, at least you get snow, right? So. Yeah, <laughs> no, and it's uh, yeah, it's so cold here. Like after living in Houston for for four years, I was not ready at all. Oh, I know. Yeah. It's been in the fifties here, and I've I've we've like turned on the heat, and I've like felt it. It's cold, <laughs> you know. Yeah, and I grew up in Idaho, or you know, we lived in Nevada, so it's like this shouldn't be bad. What am I freezing? You know, <laughs> right, right. But it's such a big difference than during the summer there. That yeah, you feel the difference. Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, so yeah, I mean, uh, is there anything else that you were dying to talk about? Um, anything else that I am dying to talk about? Um, yeah, well, I think maybe one thing that I would just kind of plug really fast is some changes in curriculum that have been happening at University of Chicago that I just think are so important and so, so wonderful to see, which is that um, a lot of the um, 
the theory curriculum has been changing from a focus on like urological musics into um, a much broader look at music from all around the world. And um, in particular, a class I'm taking this, this quarter, um, which is uh, on 20th century analysis and typically was on, you know, Schoenberg and the Indian right. school and, um, you know, all, all these composers who, uh, yeah, 12 tone music and pitch class sets and all that stuff. Um, and the entire curriculum has been revamped to be about the, the black radical tradition in the 20th century and free jazz. And um, I just, I have to say it is the most wonderful thing to see um, when um, institutions are actually responding and listening to, um, to these uh, petitions for change. So um, that is yeah. so cool. Yeah, I wish, you know, uh, that, that we talked about that uh, with a couple other people. And it's, it's so cool when you do have those ones that are like, we hear you, we're making changes, you know? Whereas uh, it feels like sometimes even the ones in the thick of it, you know, they're still resistant to doing things. So uh, it's cool. It's so cool. I, I mean, definitely, man, I wish I was taking that class. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a great experience. Yeah. And I, I think, um, often institutions are, are slow to respond to these kinds of changes. So I think um, when uh, people are really willing to kind of like champion these really, really important changes, even in a field that seems so kind of niche and like um, not as important to activism as uh, so many of the other things happening in the world, it's just really gratifying to see. Oh, definitely, definitely. Um, I and I would mention that as, as something that's been making me very happy this year. No, yeah, I think that's great. I think I wish more people uh, like, you know, I was doing my dissertation and it was based off of hip hop music and just like searching for anyone that might have a program around centered around that or even discussing it, you know, and there was like one in Georgia and then Harvard has something, you know, other than that, people like coordinate off to, you know, a brief segment in American music history, you know, and it's just like, uh, it, you know, to talk about um, Black revolutionary music and to analyze that kind of stuff. I mean, that's that's amazing because it's such a an important part of musical history. Yeah, it, it absolutely is. And I think um, one thing that uh, has been like very clear throughout this whole process is that um, it isn't just about the music that we're picking to look at that mm -hmm. changed. It's the entire way that we analyze music. And um, I think uh, often, like, um, as, as Dr. Philip Ewell says in his, um, his really important uh, presentation about the white racial frame in music theory, um, I, I think often the way that we've been taught to analyze music has this white supremacist bent to it. And yeah. we're told to that, um, that music that comes from a European tradition is better than music that comes from other traditions. And I think to actually look at those, those musics with empathy and with, um, yeah, with, with a, um, a sense of intersubjectivity is, is just the most important thing. Oh, thank you, Paul. We really, I, well, we, I really enjoyed it. I know listeners will enjoy it and, you know, your music is so beautiful. I can't wait to hear more of it. Um, I'm going to definitely keep, you know, uh, we'll put in a, a link to your SoundCloud and, uh, and then people can hear more, more excerpts and uh, definitely help with you, hear more of your music. So, yeah, well, thank you so much. And it's been such a pleasure to, to talk to you and to catch up with you. It's, it has been great to talk to you and uh, we will, we will definitely talk again soon. <laughs>
Thanks for listening to the Sounds of the World podcast. We hope you enjoyed the episode. There are links to everything in the episode description and also on our website. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Sounds of the World. To show support for Sounds of the World podcast, please join our Patreon, where you can have access to our after-party discussions with guests, discounted merchandise, and even more. If you have any questions, answers, or episode suggestions, please email us at soundsoftheworldpodcast at gmail.com. Well, Bill, I think I'm going to go have a beer now. Hey, there you go.